0: Book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, we are getting into uh, some pretty crazy stuff in this passage. But as we turn there, and before we get into it, I, I want us to think about the idea of an underdog. I'm the guy that likes to, to cheer for the underdog. I don't know if that's you, but I like to pull for the team that's not supposed to win. Um, like right now, I, I and they're not, unfortunately, but I, I want the Bills to beat the Chiefs because the Chiefs, I mean... Come on, Mah- that, they were last year. They, they got their Super Bowl, whatever. We're, we're done with the Chiefs. Now, now the Bills Mafia needs to take their rightful place on the Super Bowl mountain of Ru- Mount Rushmore and win a Super Bowl. But I don't think it's gonna happen. But I like the underdog. Well, here's the thing about God, guys, that we need to understand. God is never a long shot. God is never the underdog. God is always the favorite. And that's because God is always sovereign. So no matter what situation you find yourselves in, and no matter how long the odds may seem, if you are willing to be faithful to God, you're gonna find yourself on the winning side of that equation. The hard thing for us to get and for us to wrap our minds around is that that winning equation is what's winning according to how God's gonna define it, not how we wanna define it. But God is never gonna be beaten. He's never gonna be defeated. His plans are never gonna be thwarted, no matter who is standing in opposition to him. In our passage that we're going to look at together tonight, we're going to find Daniel and his three friends in a difficult spot, and we're going to find the odds stacked up against them, and we're going to find the most powerful man in all of the known world at the time really standing opposed to God and his people, and the question is going to be, okay, is God the long shot? And the answer I've already given away to you is no, but we're going to find out why and how. So grab your Bibles and flip open to Daniel chapter two, and let's start by reading verses one through three together. It says this, it says, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king and the king said to them, I had a dream, And my spirit is troubled to know the dream. So we've got this scenario that that takes place, it says, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Well, Daniel and his three friends had been in this training program. Remember, we talked about that last time, how they were brought in and they began to learn and they had to eat from the king's table. Although they said, hey, let's let's not do that. They ate vegetables and drank water and they ended up, okay, well, that training program takes about three years. So how can this be the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign? And the reason is because as the Babylonians counted a a reign, they didn't count the first year. Because the first year of the king's reign was usually just a a, a partial year. It wasn't a full year, depending on when the last king died. So that first year wasn't counted. So we would say that this was the third year. But they were saying, no, this is really the, the second year. And that's the thing. It's the... The, the, the first year is not counted. So if you're wondering, oh, look, it's, it's wrong. The Bible's wrong. It's the second year, but it had to have been the third year. Well, no, it was the third year. It's just the Babylonians didn't count the first year of the king's reign. So Daniel and his friends are newly minted, fresh out of the wise men training academy of Babylon. And they're going to be facing quite the test. It says in the text that Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. You guys remember Pharaoh? Back in Genesis chapter 40, Pharaoh has his own set of dreams. And those dreams, they, they start to, to cause Pharaoh to panic. And one of the guys that's standing there says, oh, wait a minute, I remember this guy in prison who knew how to interpret dreams. You should, you should call him up here. And it was Joseph. And you guys know the rest of the story there. Well, it was the same thing, the same reaction, the same response that Pharaoh had to his dreams. Now Nebuchadnezzar has to these dreams in Daniel chapter two. And the thing that we have to think about is you and I may wake up from a bad dream and think to ourselves, oh man, that was rough. And we may not even really be able to get back to sleep for the rest of the night, but there's something in the back of our mind that says to ourselves what our parents always told us from the time that we were little growing up, and that is that it's just a dream, right? It's it's okay. It's just a dream. It's not, it's not real, right? Like when Luke comes running down the hall at 5 a.m. or 3 a.m. or whenever he comes and The pitter patter of his feet, and I hear it, and I know exactly what's coming. And he comes in our room, and he has a bad dream. And so we put him in bed with us for about two minutes. He's like, Okay, I'm good to go. I can go back to my room now. And then we send him back because he's comforted and he knows it's just a dream. It's not real. Well, in this culture, at this time, with the Babylonians, they had this mindset that dreams were messages from the gods. So Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that was so bad and, and so intense that the most powerful man in the known world can't get back to sleep, right? Like this guy is insulated, he's protected. Nothing is gonna threaten him, nothing's gonna challenge him, nothing's gonna uh, cause him pain or anything else. The guy's got his own personal bodyguard as we're gonna see later. He is insulated. This guy is, is living life well and yet this dream is so startling to him that he can't get back to sleep. And then he summons, well, everyone. He summons everyone. He summons all these people. It starts the, the list. It says first, the magicians. Okay. Well, the magicians at that time weren't like Penn and Teller. They, he, he didn't want to be entertained with, now you see it and now you don't. Oh, and your dream's okay. Don't worry about it. No, these were the, the, the professors or the scholars or the philosophers at the time. They were the people that Uh, were were just the, 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 these are the wise of the wise. If we were to classify Daniel somewhere in the wise men of Babylon, we would put him in this category, that he was one of these magicians, not in the sense that he was doing magic, but that was what they referred to as those that were the the really wise people, the scholars, the professors, again, the, the philosophers of the age. So he summons them. And then the second group is the enchanters. And the enchanters think modern day fortune tellers. Think the psychics, think the, the, the crystal ball type people that can supposedly tell the future and what's happening. So he says, well, get them too, and he, he calls them in. And then there's the sorcerers, and the sorcerers are those that dabble in witchcraft. These are the ones that the, the king surrounded himself with because they would say, hey, king, we will put, pronounce curses on your enemies and, and cast spells on those that are opposed to you. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, yeah, let's, let's bring the sorcerers in here as well. And then finally, the, the Chaldeans, And the Chaldeans were the astrologers. They were those that would look at the stars and try to interpret the path of events based on what stars were in the sky and what formations they were in. So Nebuchadnezzar calls all these guys in. By the way, these were all the people that we read about in Daniel chapter 1 verse 20 where it said that Daniel and his three friends were found 10 times better than all of the wise men in the entire kingdom of Babylon. So Daniel and his three friends have already lapped these guys. Daniel and his three friends have already put these guys to shame. For whatever reason, the king doesn't bring Daniel in at this point. Maybe because he was fresh out of the program. Maybe because he just was busy. Who knows what what happens? But Daniel's not there, all that to say. And so the king calls him in. And then let's see what happens after that. Pick up in verse four. It says this It says, Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation." The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there's but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. See, Nebuchadnezzar is, again, disturbed by this dream. And he wants to get to the bottom of it. He wants to know what its interpretation is. And he's so put off by this dream that he presents this impossible scenario to these guys. And why does he present the the impossible scenario? Well, he tells us in that text that we just read. He said, look, I know you guys just lie to me. He said, I know you don't really know how to tell the future. I know you can't really cast spells on people, enchanters, chaldeans. I know you just like to stare at stars and twinkly lights in the sky. I I know you don't really have any power is what the king is telling his wise men, his most trusted advisors and counselors. And before this time, the king was willing to play the game. He's willing to say, okay, hey, I had this dream, and this giant pizza was chasing me, and I didn't know what to do, and then I turned around, and I ate it all. Tell me what the dream is. Well, king, obviously, that means that you're a smart dude, and you're going to live for 3,000 years, and all of your enemies are going to perish forever, and look at that star. It means that you're going to have 10,000 children. Awesome, good, cool. I'm going to go back to sleep now. No, this wasn't that kind of a dream. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't going to play games. So in order to know that these guys really knew what was going on, in order so that Nebuchadnezzar could know, because remember, his conviction was, his belief was, and he's right in this instance, that his dream is a message from the gods. Not from the gods, but from God, from Yahweh. And so Neb wants to know. And put yourself in their shoes for a minute. Just think about one of your friends showing up tonight and sitting down next to you and being like, I had the craziest dream last night. Oh yeah, tell me about it. No, I want you to tell me what my dream was you laugh because that's ridiculous. That's absurd, right? But that's what the king had asked of these wise men, enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans. And the problem was he he threatened them on top of that. And not only them, but their families. He said, look, if you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you're going to be torn limb from limb. Oh, and your family's will as well. So these guys are up against it. and, and, if there's any way that within the, the power contained within these human beings, if there was any way they could do something to tell the king his dream, if, they, if there was any legitimacy to their title of enchanter, sorcerer, chaldean, if there was anything behind that, they would have scraped the bottom of the barrel to be able to answer the king because of what was at stake. Their lives were on the line and their family's lives were on the line. And yet, what do they say to the king? Look at verse 11 again. The thing that the king asks is difficult. Okay, that's an understatement. That's a, it's impossible is what they're saying. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Again, they're close there. They're so close to getting the point, right? They're so close when they say that no one can tell it to the king except the gods. No, it's not no one can tell it to the king except for the gods, but no one can tell it to the king except for who? God, except for Yahweh. See, God was trying to get a message across to Nebuchadnezzar. And this, even the the, the actions of Nebuchadnezzar, by him calling his wise men and everybody in, and him not telling them the dream, but saying to them, no, I want you to tell me the dream. God is using even that scenario to make sure that Nebuchadnezzar knows and understands that this is a message from him and that he's going to understand that this is a sure thing that's going to happen. Y'all, there's a lot of people in this world who will tell you what they believe is going to happen next. Politics, COVID-19, even Christians sometimes will say, well, this is when the end of the world is going to happen. This is when Jesus is going to come back. Oh yeah, I know that whole thing. No one knows the hour or time except God the Father alone, but, uh, and me. And so it's going to be this date and this time, right? The reality is we don't know. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know what tomorrow holds. And the fact that this virus has brought our entire nation and country and world to its knees is evidence of that, don't you think? Because all of us were caught off guard at how far and fast and vast this was going to happen. And so as we think about that, the human cards of human wisdom the house of cards, rather, of human wisdom. The preferable choice for us is not to trust in in human beings and their predictions, but to trust in our sovereign God and what he has told us is gonna happen. Point number one tonight is this, trust in God's wisdom over man's predictions. Trust in God's wisdom over man's predictions. And just think about the info wars right now. Both sides can't be right, can they? Maybe both sides can have things that they are right about in part, but both sides that are making competing truth claims can't be right. That's the law of non-contradiction. And yet they both want you to believe that they're right. And they're both going to appeal to their wisdom and appeal to their evidence and appeal to their facts and appeal to their science and say, we're the right side. It's a logical impossibility. If you listen to half of our country right now, that they're going to tell you this is the dawn of a new age. This is a golden age in politics and society and culture. And then you listen to the other half of the country and they're going to tell you that this might be the dawn of the end of the world as we know it, not the dawn of a new golden age. If you listen to some in our country right now, they're going to tell you, uh, their doctors and scientists are going to tell you that, that, that COVID is the worst thing uh, that, that has ever happened and it still is bad. And you should stay at home and wear three masks and buy a HEPA filter and just breathe the air that comes straight out of the HEPA filter for the rest of your life and not do anything else. And that's how you survive COVID. And then you're going to have the flip side of people that say, yeah, you know, COVID's there, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's serious for some, but it's manageable for most. So we should really get back to living our lives. And then you're going to have some financial experts that are going to come out and say, man, the, the things are unstable right now. You should pull your money out of banks. You should invest in Bitcoin. Or at least part of Bitcoin because no one can buy a a whole one. At least I can't. So pull all your money out, invest in this Bitcoin currency or whatever. You're going to have those people, right? But then on the flip side, you're going to have others that say, no, you need to stay the course and invest in the stock market, and the economy is going to bounce back and everything is going to be fine. Who can you trust? All of these prognostications, all of these predictions, all of the the, the human wisdom that we've surrounded ourselves with in these think tanks that are all telling us, this is what you should think about what's coming. And the the reality is when we get down to it, guys, they have no clue. Nobody does. 9-11. I was in high school when that happened. Senior in high school. Guys, I I got up and went to school that morning and I had no clue that that was going to happen. And neither did anyone else in our country, except for the men, the terrorists who got on those planes and hijacked those planes and flew them into the buildings. See, we're we're powerless to predict anything. People who die in tragic car accidents didn't wake up that morning thinking they were going to die in an accident, and they didn't have anyone in their life that could tell them that that was going to happen. Who is ultimately right? Who can you believe? The, the only answer to that, the only valid answer to that is one, and it is, it's God. Guys, the only wisdom you can take to the bank, the only predictions that you can take to the bank are, is the wisdom and the, the prophecies found in God's word. It's what he says is true and what he says is gonna happen. And listen, here's church, what we need to be worried about, what we need to be concerned about is, and that's this. He wants us right now to be making disciples regardless of anything else going on in this world and you know what what what's next according to him is is Jesus is coming back for his church you can take that to the bank and you know what god said is is we're not going to know the day or hour or time that that happens so we need to live ready for that you can take that to the bank And then there's going to be a time of, of distress and tribulation on this earth, unlike any that has ever happened before for seven years. And that, that's going to be the time where the great enemy, the Antichrist, rises up and his false prophet and the beast. That, you can take that and you can say, okay, that, you can take that to the bank. And then at the end of that, you're going to have Christ return and set up his, his reign on earth, his millennial kingdom. You can take that to the bank because the Bible teaches it. And then at the end of the millennial kingdom, Satan will be released for a period of time and then vanquished and defeated and cast into the lake of fire. You can take that to the bank. And then after that, there's going to be instituted the the new heavens and the new earth. And whether you agree with my eschatology or not, here's what you can agree with. We're going to spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth with Christ as our king and our God. And there's not going to be any more sin, sorrow, sickness, disease, or anything else. That you can hold on to as a certain and sure promise. Because that's what God's word says. What's going to happen tomorrow? I don't know. What's going to be the legacy of this new administration? I don't know. Nobody does. Nobody does. So we need to trust in God's wisdom over man's predictions. That's a lesson that that God is going to be teaching Nebuchadnezzar through this. Well, they say, hey, Neb, if we can call you Neb, King Neb, sir, your royal Nebness, We can't do this. This thing that you're asking us to do is absurd. It's ridiculous. It's insane. We can't do it. Well, how did Neb respond to that? Pick up again in verse 12. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious. It's not a good thing. And he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So he's following through on his order, on his threat here. So the decree went out that all the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. The king was angry and very furious. In the Hebrew, there's, there's two words there angry and furious, and they per- right next to each other, and they're, they're basically synonyms. And it's actually not, it's not Hebrew at this point, it's Aramaic. And the reason why they did that is to emphasize the point. Uh, one of the translations says he was violently angry. It's about as strong as, as Daniel could have described it for us. In the Hebrew, it basically reads, look, he was angry with a very great anger, angry with a very great fury, with a rage. So the king flies off the handle. He's enraged that they can't tell him his dream. Again, this dream is disturbing him. If you're wondering about the dream, by the way, we're going to get to that next week, not this week. So you're going to have to come back. But it says, and he commands that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So he's like, I I threatened this, and now I'm going to follow through because you guys, I know now for sure, I know that you're worthless. You have nothing that you can offer me. Commands that they all be destroyed, and notice it says, they sought Daniel and his companions with them to put them to death. This was going to be a grand public execution of the king's counselors. They were all going to be gathered together in one place. And the king is, is so angry. And I think he's so angry for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think he's frustrated with the impotence of his counselors, with the fact that they can't really do what they say they're going to do. I think his suspicions are confirmed. And he knows, okay, man, you guys have been just blowing smoke at me for the last three years. You can't do anything. You're powerless. I think he's, there's that. And then I, I think the other reason why he's so angry is because he can't control anything. This is one thing that he can control. He can't control the meaning of this dream or the outcome or what it has to do with him, but he can control what he can do with these counselors. And so he issues the order. He says, all right, we're gonna, we're gonna wipe them all out. Again, just like when I said, put yourself in the shoes of these, these wise men, put yourself in the shoes of Daniel and his three friends when they find out that that order is official and from the king. It's gonna be pretty scary, isn't it? Especially once you find out why. Because maybe initially you're thinking, oh well, maybe we can help. And then you find out, oh man, they want he wants the the dream and the interpretation. Like just having the conversations amongst the wise men. Yeah, the dream and the interpretation. Can you believe that? No, I can't believe that. That's crazy. Are you sure you heard right, dude? I was there. And he said, Yeah, kill all of us. Even you guys. I'd start packing my bags. I'd be thinking to myself, "Man, how can I get out of Babylon as fast as I can? What can I do? How can I avoid this? I, I don't want to be killed." But what does it say in the text? Look at verse fourteen again. I love, I love this. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. There's an intentional contrast going on here in in the in the scriptures here, between. Nebuchadnezzar's response to the wise men and Daniel's response to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar responds with a very great angry fury. He was angry with a very great anger, right? Daniel responds with a prudence that demonstrates a great discretion. Again, prudence and discretion are synonyms, just like angry and furious are synonyms. And so there's a contrast between the pagan king who doesn't know the sovereign God of the universe and Daniel. Who finds out, okay, that's it, you're done, I'm gonna execute all of you. He hears this, and Daniel, because he does know the sovereign God of the universe, is able to respond with prudence and discretion. He doesn't panic, he keeps his wits about him. And so he goes to the captain of the king's guard. Think back in the Old Testament, think to Joab and Abner, you remember those guys? David's mighty men, Saul's mighty man, those are the guys that they were executing people for the king. Sometimes right in the, the, at the word go from the king, they would go out and strike somebody down and kill him. That's what Arioch is for Nebuchadnezzar. He's his own personal private bodyguard. This is the, the chief of the king's military. And Daniel goes to him and says, hey, what's so urgent about all this? There's an escalation at work in the first three chapters of the book of Daniel showing the, the faith in a God who's bigger than. In chapter one, you remember it was the chief eunuch, the chief servant of the king. And Daniel went to the chief servant and said to him, hey, can, can we just be tested for 10 days? And Daniel was risking something even there, but he was trusting that God was bigger than this chief eunuch in order to, to grant him the, the favor with him to be able to be given that time so that he could not defile himself with the king's food. So that's, that's level one. Now we're in chapter two, here's level two. Daniel is trusting that God is bigger than the the chief guard, the king's chief bodyguard. He's trusting that God is is bigger than him. And so he's going to go to this chief bodyguard and say, hey, what's so urgent? Do you mind? Can I get in front of the king for a second and ask him for a minute to, to try to consider if I can come up with the answer to his problem? Again, Daniel's trusting that God is bigger than this guy. And then in in two weeks, we're gonna look at chapter three and we're gonna see there it's it's escalated to the top that Daniel's now actually, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego rather are gonna stand in front of the king himself now and say, look, our God is bigger king than you are. The common denominator with all three of these levels is they were trusting in God's sovereign providence over their lives and that these officials, these rulers, and even the king couldn't do anything to them apart from God's sovereign permission. They were trusting that God was bigger. And that's what let Daniel reply with prudence and discretion. In verse 15, it says, He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? And then Arioch fills Daniel in. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time. Hey, hey, give give me a minute, king. And let me see if I can come up with it. That he might show the interpretation to the king. Y'all, we're a long way from being in circumstances like this. A long way from being in circumstances like this. But like I said last week, if you're not preparing yourself now for when the heat gets turned up, you're not going to have this response when you need it. If you're not pronouncing or preparing yourself now, you're not going to be ready when push comes to shove like we talked about last week. And so take whatever adversity, whatever trial, whatever difficulty you're facing currently and ask yourself the question, have I responded to this with prudence and discretion because of my faith in God? Have I been able to remain calm in the face of adversity, calm in the face of trial the way that Daniel and his three friends did when their lives were literally on the line? Were they able to stay calm because they knew that God was bigger? Point number two tonight is this. Stay calmly rooted in your confidence in the Lord. Stay calmly rooted in your confidence in the Lord. Again, we, we saw this a little bit last week with, with Ashpenaz, the king's chief eunuch. But now the stakes are ratcheted up. They're, they're even higher because now the, the, the death warrant has been signed for Daniel and his three friends. Their lives essentially are as good as, as over from an earthly perspective. And it, I don't know about you, but being torn limb from limb doesn't sound like this is going to be the guillotine. It's going to be a painful, unhappy death. But Daniel remains unshakable, immovable, calmly rooted. What? Why? In his confidence in the Lord, in his trust in God. And that's what allows him to respond with prudence and discretion. It's a familiar passage, but I don't want to focus on the part that we often focus on. I want to focus on the part that comes before it. But Paul says this in Philippians chapter four. He says, rejoice in the Lord when? Always. Rejoice in the Lord always. And we're so quick to get to, yeah, but Pastor PJ, there's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is circumstantial. Joy is a deep abiding, just calm and peace. Do you think Paul knew what the word rejoice meant when he wrote it? Yes, yes, he did rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He repeats it. Then he says this, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. He's he's near. He's coming. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus Where did Paul write that from? Was it the Ritz-Carlton? Where was he? He was in jail, y'all. He was in prison. Amanda and I got to stand right outside. We didn't get to go in because there was a guy that was preaching fire while we were there and he was taking up the spot inside the jail cell. But we stood where he was when he was writing that letter. He's in jail. And and we know from earlier in Philippians chapter one, right? When he says, look, I don't know what's going to happen to me. He says, I I might die, and if I die, what does he say? He says, to die is is gain, right? Bring it, give me death. And then he says, but I'm convinced in my heart that I'm gonna keep living because you guys need me to keep serving you. But all that to say, Paul was not living the high life when he's writing this. So when he says to us, rejoice in the Lord always, don't write this off and say, well, that's easy for you to say, Paul, let's slow our roll on our cynicism. Rejoice in the Lord always always. Again, I will say rejoice. And then he says this, let your, what's that next word there? Reasonableness. Let your prudence and your discretion be known to everyone because the Lord's at hand. Whatever trial you're facing, the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. Whatever you're up against, you can be prudent and you can be discreet and you can be reasonable in how you're responding. You don't have to wig out. You don't have to freak out. Why not, Paul? Why why shouldn't I be freaking out, Paul? You don't know what I'm going through, Paul. Because you have access to the throne of God through prayer. Therefore, don't be anxious about what's going on in your life. Don't worry. Don't panic. don't, Don't be scared. Bring those things to the Lord. Let your request be made known to him. And what's he going to do for me, Paul? Well, he's going to guard your hearts and your mind. Those are the two areas of our life that panic and anxiety and fear grip us. And Paul says he's going to guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus our Lord with what? With the peace that surpasses understanding. Y'all, if Daniel didn't have a peace that surpasses understanding in the face of his death warrant, I don't know what he had. Daniel was able to let his reasonableness be known because he had confidence in God that God was sovereign. And that God was going to k- take care of him. That God was going to keep loving him. Again, Paul knew what it was to suffer, y'all. Second Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives his resume of suffering. I talked about it last week. I'm, I'm hitting on it again this week. Spend time, maybe read that in your, your small groups. But look at the pain and the suffering that Paul went through. And not only that, but then on top of that, Paul talks about how he's got this thorn in the flesh that won't go away. Paul knew what it was to have perpetual, consistent, persistent, day in, day out suffering that he would plead with the Lord, please remove this from my life. And he would hear back from the Lord. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. My grace is sufficient. And Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always and let your reasonableness be known because the Lord is near. In the Old Testament, it reads this way, Psalm fifty-five, twenty-two. Psalm fifty-five, twenty-two. I love this, bur- this verse. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will sustain you. When you feel like you can't go, God will sustain you. He will keep you going. He will strengthen you. He will encourage you. He will build you up when you need to be built up. He will never permit, he will never allow the righteous Person to be moved. Y'all, the only thing that allows us to have this type of response to trials or even what James says in James chapter one when he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. The only thing that gives us that level of response and that ability to respond is knowing that God is sovereign and he is bigger than anything I'm facing right now. And that nothing I'm facing right now is outside of his purview. Nothing I'm facing right now Is he unaware of? He knows it. In fact, he's brought it. Why? Because he loves me. And that's it, y'all. That's it right there. God loves you. The God of this universe cares for you. He does. And he knows what you need and what you don't need. And he knows what you want. And everything that he is doing, he's doing because as a father to a child, he cares for you. He loves you. He is passionate about you as his son, as his daughter. Christian, this comes down to faith. Do you believe that God is sovereign over the twists and turns in your life? Do you really believe that? Not just nod your head because we're in church and we're supposed to do that. Do you really believe that? Christian, do you believe that nothing that happens in your life catches God off guard or surprises him? Think about this, y'all. God has never learned one thing in his entire existence. God has never learned anything because he is all-knowing. That's the definition of all-knowing. Christian, do you believe that God loves you and that he won't allow anything to befall you or happen to you that isn't part of his perfect plan for you? Do you believe that? Do you believe that being with him, like Paul said, is better than being here on this earth? Do you believe that? How about this one? Do you believe, Christian right now, do you believe that he loves the Christians who are being persecuted in China, in the Middle East, and who are dying because of their relationship with Jesus? Do you believe that he loves them? And if what was happening to them was happening to you, would He you still answer the same way? Y'all, do you believe that God installs rulers and removes them. Do you believe that? Or do you believe that you're able to alter the course of your life by being worried and anxious? Or do you believe that you know better than God what is good for you and what is right for your life? Daniel's faith enabled him to respond with prudence and discretion and go before the king and say, Hey, can we have a minute? Can we have a minute, king? He keeps his wits. He didn't try to find a loophole or run or panic or anything else. What happens? He goes back to his house, verse 17, and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. And his companions and told them to seek mercy from the God of heavens concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong the wisdom and the might. He changes the times and the seasons and he removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore, Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and said thus to him Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Ariok brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. Okay, there's a lot going on in what we just read there. So let's hash it out for a second. The first thing that we find here is this. Daniel goes back and fills his friends in. Hey, uh, uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, I've got some bad news. Um, Don't panic, but... uh, we're going to die unless we can tell the king his dream and its interpretation. Daniel, what should we do? He encourages them after he fills them in to do what? To pray. And I want you to pay attention to that, y'all. That should be one of our first stops in the face of adversity, is praying, is appealing to God for mercy, is appealing to God, as it says in the text there, seek mercy from the God of heaven. When you're facing a trial and you're facing a tribulation, it is not a bad thing or a wrong thing to go to God and to ask him to help, to go to God and and to ask him to intervene, to go to God and ask him to to stop what's happening in your life. That's a good and right thing, and God wants you to do that because as you do that, you are expressing dependence on him, and you're actually glorifying him through saying, God, I, I need you. These three men, these four men go before the Lord and and they go before the Lord because they knew that even though the king had signed the order, ultimately the final decision was in the hands of God. They knew that he was the sovereign one and that he could stop this. And so they pray and they say to him, hey, look, God, if there's any way that you could reveal this dream, we would love for that to happen right now because maybe you don't know, but this order has been signed. No, they didn't say that. They said, God, we know that you're aware of what's going on and we need you to help. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, that we need to ask boldly of the Lord things in prayer. You know why? Because Paul says that he is able to do far more abundantly above and beyond all that we ask or imagine. Did you catch that? Far more abundantly above and beyond all that we ask or imagine. What did Jesus say to us? Jesus says to us in the Gospels, you don't have because why? Because you don't, you don't ask. You don't have because you don't ask. Ask in my name and the Father will give it to you. Now, we don't want to abuse that. We need to understand that correctly, that asking in the name of, the, of, of Jesus is asking according to the will of God through Jesus, not according to our will. But y'all, we need to pray when we face adversity, and that's exactly what Daniel and his three friends, or, yeah, three friends do. And then the second thing that's going on here is, is God responds. God answers the prayer and reveals to Daniel this dream and its interpretation, and we read about that in verse 19. Now, here's what I want to suggest to y'all. This is not normative, Okay. So in other words, I don't want you to to become super monomaniacally focused on interpreting dreams and visions, okay? This was one of the ways that God operated at this time. Remember the culture. God was trying to get something across to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's culture said dreams are messages from God, okay? From the God's lowercase g. So God, the the big case G, capital G, big case. Yeah, that's proper. (laughs) Yahweh, there we go. Yahweh comes on the scene and says, okay, you believe that dreams are, are from the gods? I'm going to give you a dream, Nebuchadnezzar, and I'm going to get across to you that way. And so God is doing something specific with them. By the way, the interpretation that Daniel gets then becomes scripture itself. It's, it's part of the, the breathed out word of God, his interpretation. If you want to come to me and say, God interpreted my dream and here's what God is saying, then I'm going to say, okay, hold on, let me get a, 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 a tablet and a chisel because we need to put this in stone because you're about to tell me scripture, Okay. In other words, God is not inspiring interpretations of dreams anymore. Can I just clarify that doctrinal thing? This was a, a, a descriptive situation, not a prescriptive situation. But Daniel receives the interpretation from God because God is trying to get a message across to Nebuchadnezzar. Third thing we find there is that Daniel then in, in turn praises God for his mercy and his sovereignty. And you know, that's so important too. Not only do we need to, to make our first stop prayer in the midst of our difficulty, but when God responds, when God delivers us, when God relieves the, the the burden that we have. We need to make sure that we praise him, that we worship him, that we glorify him for the good that he's done in our lives. And Daniel does that and just attributes just amazing things to the Lord. God, you change times and seasons. There was a time when Israel was great, we're not great anymore. And that's because you changed out that time, God. There's seasons that we see come across the the landscape of the year. And God, you are the one that changes those out. But even more than that, God, you you remove kings and you set kings up. God, you remove Jehoiakim and you have instead put over us this evil ruler, Nebuchadnezzar. God, you used Nebuchadnezzar to, to beat the, the army of Pharaoh Necho at the Battle of Carchemish. You did that, God. You install kings. You raise them up and you tear them down. It's, again, an amazing statement of God's sovereignty. Oh, by the way, God, you are the one who gives wisdom. You are the one who gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who under, have understanding. It's not, it's not wise men. It's certainly not magicians and enchanters and astrologers. It's, it's none of that. No, the wisdom comes from you, God. And then Daniel says, and, and you are the one who reveals deep and hidden things. Daniel's saying, it's not me that's going to be able to boast in, in having this interpretation. God, it comes from you and you alone. So Daniel praises God. The, the fourth thing that Daniel does, though, is he thanks God. He not only praises him, but he thanks him for answering their prayer and preserving their lives there in verse 23. And then finally, he goes back to Ariach and declares that he's ready to make known to the king the dream and the interpretation. Okay, so that's everything that we just read. Daniel comes back, encourages his friends, hey, we need to pray. They pray. God responds and reveals. They praise God for revealing. They thank God for revealing. And then Daniel says, okay, I need to go and talk to Ariok because everybody was being gathered up for this massive public execution. You know, Daniel could have skipped steps three and four in there. He could have gone from praying and God answering to going, okay, now I got to get out of here. I got to get to Ariok right away. And he could have run to Ariok. In fact, he could have even kind of swaggered up to Ariok with a brash cockiness like, hey, why don't you bring me in before the king? I'll tell him what his dream was. He could have claimed glory. He could have claimed credit. He could have walked into Nebuchadnezzar's chambers all brash. He could have forgotten his dependence on the Lord that he had just had such a keen experience of. But he didn't. When God provided the light at the end of the tunnel for Daniel, when God took Daniel from the valley and began to put him on the upslope to come out of the valley, Daniel glorified God and praised him in response. That's our final point tonight is this. Remember the Lord in your seasons of relief. Remember the Lord in your seasons of relief. Y'all, oftentimes our most intimate times with the Lord are times of trial and suffering those are the times that we feel so keenly our need for him, our dependence upon him. Those are the times that we feel that desperation for him. And so we pray like Daniel and his three friends did. We pray for his mercy and we pray for relief from the pain and the sorrow and the suffering that we're facing and and we we spend more time in his word and we we feel like we need this and we have to be in his word and god i i I need to be in your word daily and and teach me and show me and and help me get through this and and i i know you're sovereign god and you are good and i know you're working all things together for my good even though right now it doesn't feel like it god and i i believe that and i trust in that and that's right y'all we should have that response but the problem is what happens when when you're brought out of that period of suffering What happens when the the pain does go away? When the sorrow is lifted? If somebody were to ask you, yeah, sure, you'd say, oh, yeah, oh, man, yeah, praise God, I'm through that time. That was such a rough time, and God brought me through it. I'm so thankful for that. But then we begin to drift again, don't we? And we find that we're not praying as much because we don't feel the urgency anymore. And we find that we're not in God's word as much because, oh man, we just get really busy with things in our lives. And we find that we're not really praising God for the good things going on in our lives because we just kind of feel like this should be what normal life is like. We get this kind of entitled sense of, well, yeah, of course things are going well in my life. I'm, I'm, I'm a human being with a pulse. Shouldn't that just happen? And we neglect our relationship with the Lord. You know, one of the, the, the biggest problems that we have as Christians is this transactional relationship with God. Where we come to him when we really feel like we need him. And we're willing to do the things that, we, that he desires of us, like to pray and to read his word, and to be at his church, and to sing his praises, And to just rely upon him and trust him and to thank him and to glorify him and to praise him. We're willing to do all those things when we need something from him. And then once we get what we need, we forget how desperate we were in that season and we let quote unquote normal life crowd him out again. Another way to put it is this. We want God to be big in our lives when we need him to be big, but then we don't want him to get in the way when we don't need him anymore. when we feel like we've got things under control. But here's the, the, the truth that we need to hold on to, that we need to remember, and that is this, Christians, God is always big in your life. All of the good that is happening in your life is happening because God has brought it to you. James says it, every good and perfect gift comes from where? From the Father. James doesn't say every good and perfect gift comes from you working hard and earning it, does he? He doesn't say every good and perfect gift comes to you because you deserve it, does he? He says every good and perfect gift comes to you from the Father. See, Christian, God is always big in your life. It's just we only realize it when we need him. But even that is the wrong paradigm that we have. you know, you need Him all the time. All the time, you need Him. There's not a second that you spend alive that you are not fully dependent on the Lord for your heart beating, your lungs breathing, your brain synapses firing. God does all of that. Not only that, but He gives you the clothes on your back and puts a roof over your head and puts food on your table. Christian, God allows you to listen to a new song that comes on the radio and go, wow, that sounds really good. I, I like that. That's that's enjoyable. God allows you to sit on the beach and look at a sunset and w- say, wow, that's that's beautiful. God allows you to go on a hike, God allows you to go surfing. God allows you to go on vacation. God allows you to take a break. God allows you to take a nap. God allows you to all of these things that you look at and you say, These are all things that I enjoy, things that I love. And you would push back from the table and say, These are just part of what it is to be alive. And in my response to that is, no, it's, it's not. Ask the, the Christians in China who are being persecuted right now if that's a normative part of their life. These are gifts that God has given you. Are you grateful for them? Are you thankful for them? Daniel kept this squarely in view. Y'all uh, look at the, the rest of the chapter here as we close. It says, then the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, because the Babylonians like weird names. Are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation? Stop right there for a second. Here's the moment. Neb, tease him up for Daniel to take the credit, for Daniel to go, yep, I am. What you gonna do for me, king? I, you know, my, the, the living accommodations that I have, I'm living with these three guys. We're all teenagers. We kind of stink a little bit. It'd be sweet if we could get a few, you know, villas to ourselves, some servants, what are you going to do for me, king? See, the king tees him up. Are you able, Daniel? But what does Daniel say? He, again, remember what we're talking about here, remains dependent on the Lord even during the good times. In the seasons of relief, he's grateful to the Lord. What does Daniel say? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked, but but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to the King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. And you're gonna to have to come back next week to find out what they are. But dude, this is like the Braveheart moment, right? And if you think this is Braveheart, just wait, the book gets better. Like there are so many goosebump moments in Daniel we're like, yes, yes, that's right. It's my God that he's talking about, Right? I mean, Daniel's standing in front of the the most powerful man alive, and he says, yeah, you're right. Your wise men are worthless, and and I'm lumping myself in that. I'm worthless. But, but, king, but there's a God who exists in heaven way bigger than you are, and he has revealed this mystery to you about what's going to happen in the latter days. And here you go. It's one of those moments where you just get fired up, but the reason we should get fired up is because of Daniel's humility and Daniel's point and he's saying, look, I want God to be exalted and magnified, right? Y'all, when God leads you out of trial and brings you into seasons of relief and peace and freedom and joy and, and circumstantial happiness, if you want to take that route, whatever, then make sure that you are shouting from the mountaintops that God did it. Use that as another layer of your testimony to testify to God's goodness, to to the Lord's graciousness in your life. Magnify and exalt Christ and say, let me tell you how much God loves me right now. Let me tell you what he's done for me right now. Let me encourage you, Christian, right now. Let me let you know how faithful God is right now, how good God is, how true God is. He is amazing. Don't waste your triumphs. Don't waste your mountain peaks. We want everybody to know when we're in the valley. Make sure you want everybody to know when you're on the mountain peak, but make sure that you want everybody to know that because you want them to know how awesome your God is. That's what Daniel's doing here. And it's so cool. I mean, this is just amazing stuff that we're reading about here, y'all. And it happened. This is history that we're reading about, what's, what's taking place. And just wait until next week. It's unreal what, what this dream is and how Daniel just lays it out and then drops the mic and is like, I'm, I'm done, man. I'm out. It's awesome. Y'all, prudence and discretion. Whatever you're facing tonight, Christian, God is worthy of your trust and your confidence. Whatever trial you're in, God is not a long shot. He's not the underdog. He's never been the underdog, never will be the underdog, which means if the Lord is for you, like Paul said, if God is for us, who can be against us? If the Lord is for you, that means that you're never a long shot. You're never an underdog. No matter what your adversity is, no matter what your trial is, no matter what your pain is, no matter what your sorrow is, God is bigger, and he's worthy of your trust and your confidence. Does that mean that it's going to work out the way that you want it to? No means it's going to work out the way that he wants it to and part of being a christian is confessing that god that is better that is best and that's what i want let's pray god we are grateful that these things are true that you are never the underdog that you are never a long shot that you have no rival what an amazing amazing reality that is that you are good, that you are on your throne, that you will never be usurped, you will never be challenged. God, that you will never be surprised, that you are never gonna learn a single thing because you know it all from beginning to end. You are the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. You declare the beginning from the end. As we think about our lives, you've said in Psalm 139 that you've written down every one of our days before even one has passed. What an amazing reality that is. God, you are sovereign. We confess that. We agree with that tonight. And Lord, you are good and you love us. You make that so plain when you say to the Apostle Paul that you did not spare your own son, but freely gave him up for us. And then you say, how will I will not also give you all the the, the things that you need? I've already given you Jesus. How much more love can I show than, than killing my son for you? And the answer is, that is the ultimate act of love. Everything else is gravy now. And Lord, you tell us in your word that you are working everything according to our good, even though, Lord, we in our own flesh want to define good Lord, you have defined good and that our good is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so use these trials and these pains and these sorrows that we walk through. Use our fears and anxieties as we bring them to you to remind us that you are bigger, God. And to conform us more into the image of Jesus for the glory of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.